0: Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. Good morning. Um, The scripture reading for today is from Luke 10, 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. This morning is our sixth week in our sermon series, The Hope Effect. And our goal was at the end of these seven weeks that we would experience greater hope in our life. And so this was a very practical sermon series. And this week, our sixth week, we are talking about how to replace burnout with balance. I would say that it's, I don't have to have much illustration to paint a picture of how burnout is just prevalent in our society, but I will do it a little bit. Uh, in a survey that was shared, 86% of Americans feel chronically stressed. 86% chronically stressed. 62% of Americans say that they are critically close to burnout. 59% of Americans feel a desperate need to slow down. This is interesting for me. Uh, people sleep now two and a half hours less per night than they did a hundred years ago. Which is crazy to me because, like, we have such greater abilities for productivity to get things done. Our life is, seems so much more comfortable, and we're not able to sleep as much as our, a gener- couple generations ago. We are experiencing burnout. People are stressed. Every moment of our schedule is, is, is busy, every moment is scheduled, and we treat busyness like a virtue. Oh, how busy are you? Well, I'm a little bit busier myself than you are. Sociologists, psychologists, and anthropologists are all frantically trying to find out how this is affecting us, our health, our relationships. And I want you to think about this. In a life that's constantly busy, how does the Christian narrative speaking to this? And what is the problem? So consider, if you will, the difference between a swamp and a river. What makes a swamp a swamp and a river a river? The difference between these two is that there are borders. There's clear borders in a river that allows the, river to, the water to flow, to stay together and to not spread out. Yet swamps, there's, it's borderless. And because of that, just, it just gets murky. It's hard to live there. We live in borderless times right now where we are always on. There, it there feels like there's not much rhythm in our life other than what we watch on TV. Outside of that, it's just swamp. And I wonder if God's narrative gives us a different way, a way to experience borders and life we we experience this flow that happens in and through our life, where we truly t- trade out burnout and we seek balance. This is the different ways in which people live. I found this really helpful this past week. Is uh, in in the world today, oftentimes we work, 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 and then eventually we can find ourselves having vacation or sickness. Uh, in in this book, Sabbath. Uh, Uh, the author talks about how in a world where we don't practice Sabbath, unfortunately, sickness becomes our Sabbath. Yet God's way is different, that we actually begin in Sabbath. The the Christian narrative is different than the Jewish narrative. The Jewish narrative is on the seventh day, then Sabbath happened, that God rested and commanded us to rest. But uh, what we experience here in the Christian tradition is that Because of Easter, Resurrection Sunday happens the first of the week and we live out of there. So we actually begin in rest. And then after resting, then we go into our vocation, our work, our calling. And this way of living is really, really different than this top. Because just think about the effects of beginning in Sabbath, beginning in rest, and then after being filled up. After your your soul's being recharged, then you go into this world giving what only you can give, your vocation. We have to learn a different way. Our scripture reading actually shows us the balance that we need to live in hope, to experience hope. It's a story of two sisters. Like all siblings, oftentimes they would struggle with comparison and fairness, right? Right? Uh, It would have been a huge deal in Jesus' day for this traveling rabbi, this teacher that Jesus was, to be welcomed in this woman's home. And the scripture says Martha's home. It would have been a big deal for Martha to welcome this teacher, this well-known teacher, into her home. And so you could imagine the flurry of busyness that would have happened there to get ready for this table fellowship. In their day and age, it's different than just putting on a crock pot and then six hours later having someone show up. The amount of preparations that it took to have quality table fellowship, it took great intention, it took great discipline, uh, even to provide ceremonial washing before people sat down to eat. This would have been something open for the whole community. People would have been invited to come and observe the meal if they weren't invited to sit and share the meal. Um, we might want to do that on some of our family trips. Just come and observe the meal, please don't take part in it. Um, but for, for Martha, we see in this beautiful day of such hope, such anticipation, something goes really, really wrong. And what goes really wrong is like a progression, or in me, for me, as I read this passage, it's like a, a regression. It's like just slowly things start falling apart, and we see this regression that happens in Martha's mentality and what it leads to. It first starts off by being distracted. So in verse 40, we find that Martha was distracted by all the preparations. Notice at this point, the distraction was the preparations that had to be made. She was distracted by, oh, I have to do this, and I have to do that. And so she was not focusing on the right thing. We live in a very distracted world. We have to live with such intention to silence the distractions in our life, to silence the phone, silence the email, to silence the to-do list, to silence the screens in our life so we actually get to shut the machine off. It takes such intention to do this. I listened to a Christian leader, a guy named Andy Crouch. He spoke about how his family's planning on doing this and how difficult it is for him and his family. That they, Their goal is to set aside... One hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, where the whole machine is shut off. One hour a day, no screens, no distractions. One day a week, one week a year to completely unplug. And how difficult that might be. The interesting thing is generations ago, that was normative. The one hour a day, of course. You don't even have the ability to connect. The one day a week, of course you would do that. I don't know if people took vacations one week a year back then, but the practice of unplugging, of turning off all the distractions, was normative, and for us, it's not. It's like we have to fight against the machine to be able to silence the distractions. But what it seems like in this passage are distracted lives cause problems. Because Martha started off by being distracted, and then the second thing that she, we see in this passage is that she, the distractedness turned into discouragement, that she was discouraged. And discouragement is a real danger. This causes us to lose hope. As she is serving, she is discouraged by the fact that Jesus saw everything that she had to do, but the fact that she wasn't uh, being helped by her sister Mary. And we understand this. I, I want fairness from God, don't you? Don't you want God to be fair? Yet it seems as if Jesus went silent with that. And Jesus, when he finally did speak up, said this in verse 41. You are worried and upset about many things. How annoying would this be for Martha? you wanting Jesus to help you. And Jesus like, this seems to be a teachable moment. Martha, I sense that you might be worried and upset about many things. Uh, this, I think... What Jesus is trying to get to is that Martha is having a heart and a soul issue that's coming, bubbling up to the surface. And this is causing her to experience worry and anxiety and discouragement. And that becomes a bigger problem because discouragement draws more discouragement. When we live in a mindset of discouragement, when it allows us to sink into our heart and our soul, it brings out more discouragement. It's like when you watch a movie and you know something tragic is about to happen because the soundtrack all of a sudden gets really dark. And then everything that you see in the movie could possibly have this thing jump out of a closet. Or someone you see like an ice cube on the ground, they might slip on. You're just waiting for the bad, next bad thing to happen. This is what happens when we live with discouragement in our perspective. We just expect the next bad thing to happen. And we start seeing everything as a, as a threat. So the distractions turn to discouragement, and then discouragement turns into something destructive. In verse 40, Martha came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You might look at this and go, why is this destructive? Well, you can see in this passage that a wedge is now built itself between Martha and Mary. She's now going to Jesus with this wedge. And it's subtle, but I even like the fact that, that she calls Mary, go tell my sister. She can't even like call her by the name. Like she's distancing herself from Mary. And that, you know, we do this like spouses, like, why don't you go tell your child, right? <laughs> your child. We do this kind of stiff arm that, that we see Martha kind of doing the stiff arm with Mary. A wedge is now, a gap is now between her and her sister but Martha is even at this point now commanding Jesus to start getting up and get to work right tell her take care of this we see how this all of a sudden gets destructive and who in this room gets why Martha is annoyed all the Marthas in the room go excuse me I like to translate this passage Uh, (laughs) we get this Uh, I've been annoyed in similar situations. Even more so, culturally, uh, to sit at a rabbi's feet, like Mary's doing, to sit at a rabbi's feet is taking the place of a disciple, a student. This was a man's role. Culturally, what Mary was doing was really outside of bounds. Uh, Literally, her place was in the kitchen. And so for Jesus, he lovingly, breaks the boundaries, breaks the, the codes that were given in his culture and says, Mary can sit at my feet. That Jesus looks at the cultural norms and, and just shrugs at them. That he wanted Mary to be a disciple. Meanwhile, Martha was playing her role and even more annoyed, I believe, the fact that Mary was breaking the rules like this. And when we focus on the wrong thing, like Martha was, what was happening in this situation, we lose sight of what's important. And this will make us miss out on hope. We live in a world that affirms Martha and looks down on Mary. We live in a world that praises productivity, busyness, efficiency. But the story warns us that we might be missing out on something when we neglect the posture of Mary in this world. And I want to point out something really clearly for all the Marthas in this room, of which I'm one. Jesus does not criticize Martha's service, her generosity, her hospitality. What Jesus is pointing at is her distracted, misordered service. She is serving and wanting Jesus to notice her. She's wanting Jesus to rebuke her sister and praise her, to push her down and to lift Martha up and her heart and mind had slipped into the wrong place. I wonder if we too, I wonder if we might have the same mindset that we are hoping and looking for a God who's looking at all the things that we are doing for God's name as we're climbing up the ladder of God's approval and wondering why isn't God praising us more, especially as we look around at the laziness of other people in this world. Don't we hope that God sees our achievements, our efficiency, and our productivity and starts praising us. But that's not the good news that we find in Jesus. As we are checking off our to do lists and all the things that are needed, might Jesus come to each of us and say, There's actually one thing that's needed? This reminds me of City Slickers, right? Curly is his name, I think. One thing? What is that one thing? This is, for me, a way of speaking to the gospel. That one thing is a life with God. For me, that sums up the whole story of Scripture. What God is after is one thing, and it is a life with God. Why is this the heart of the gospel? It's because you are more in God's mind and heart than a means to an end. You are more to God than a tool to use, a cog in the wheel. You are more to God than something to use to get something done. What God wants from you is a life with God, that you could know him, that you could experience him, that you could have a sense of closeness and intimacy that, that, that then spurs you into action. For me, this is not the picture I grew up with God. The picture I grew up with God was, God was a very old white male uh, who was looking down at me, constantly disappointed. (laughs) He would communicate with me through discouragement, looks, through shame, and through guilt. Uh, Thank God that that picture of God has been blown apart in my mind. The picture that I have now personally, it's been a picture that I've had of my relationship with God is something very different For me, it's a parent and a four-year-old child who is uh, washing a car together. That's my picture of my relationship with God. And anyone who's tried to wash a car with a four-year-old knows that (laughs) you could get that thing done like in a third of the time if you just did it by yourself, right? Because the child will eventually start washing the part of the car that you've already washed and rinsed off, right? Right? The the child will eventually start playing in the dirt and then putting it in in the, the bucket. The child eventually, when you're not looking, will get the hose and squirt you and end up having a bubble fight. But you know, even though it's not efficient, that's not the point. The point isn't the clean car. The point is the intimacy and the byproduct might be the car gets a little bit cleaner today. This is how I see our our relationship with God. Is that God's priority is not that things get done. God's priority is that we could intimately know who Christ is. And from this vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus, then we go. Then we go into action. And too often we get it in the wrong order. We think that our intimacy with Christ is earned by all the things that we're doing But we see over and over again that our intimacy with Jesus compels us into service. So a Christian life is a life in response to grace. A Christian life is a life in response to grace. There's nothing that anyone initiates in a relationship with God. It's always in response to who God has been. So with this in mind, we do need to grow to be more like Mary before we are growing in to be more like Martha. Not that Martha's bad, but our priority has to be first to grow like Mary, and then grow more like Martha. And oftentimes we kind of pin these two, just like we pin these two sisters in this story, against one another. We might pin their two actions against one another. Uh, in, in churches, oftentimes we'll do this. We're a church that we are a church that does justice and work in this world. This is who we are. Meanwhile, there's another stream of the church that says, "Well, what about prayer?" What about devotion? What about scripture? Well, it's great that you're doing all this stuff, but what about just knowing what it's like to be in Jesus' presence? And meanwhile, this, this part of the church stream is looking at them going, that's great that you're spending all this time with Christ, but how about you get to work in this world, right? What if we can actually live with both Mary and Martha in hand, a life of being full of action and prayer, A life of seeking justice in this world, and a life of contemplation, and meditating, and having intimacy just by sitting at Jesus' feet. What's interesting, in this passage that we just read, the story of Mary and Martha, if you look before this chapter, what you'll find is two stories, both of action. One is the uh, passage we actually heard last week, where Jesus sent the disciples out in twos. Go and do this world. Go and preach. Go and heal. And then after that, it's another passage where we find the story of the Good Samaritan, which is all about learning to love your enemy. And here we have the reminder that we find in Scripture, go into action, but don't forget to sit at Jesus' feet, that both of these things are important. Scripture again and again marries intimacy, resting in God's love, and action, our, our contemplation without action and love is meaningless. We find this in James 2, this warning. James 2, 17 and 18. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. That's really harsh. If your faith is not followed by action, your faith is dead. But someone will say, I have faith. I have or, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. What he's saying is, you, if you're someone of faith, you have to be using your faith with your hands, with your feet, with your sacrifice, with your generosity. But we find other warnings, don't be so focused on action. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul speaks about our religious deeds if they're not done with love. And I love what, how Eugene Peterson puts this in the message version. If I speak with human eloquence in angelic ecstasy, but don't love. I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. Hold on, I have it. (laughs) Y'all hear that? Do y'all hear how annoying that is? If you're doing all these things but without love, you're as annoying as a rusty gate. If I speak with God's word with power revealing all of the mysteries and making everything plain as day. If I have faith that says to the mountain, jump and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. So If love and gratitude isn't the fuel by which we are compelled into service, it's misguided. The target's on the wrong spot. We must serve out of intimacy. This is the balance that we're needed, the balance that we should replace burnout in our life. I actually don't like the term uh, balance because whose life feels balanced, right? Balance is like just, uh, I feel like on the edge of a rainbow, it's always over there. I actually like something that feels more like my life, and that word is tension, right? Because like, I experience tension in my life. And so just as this word picture, what does it take for a kite to fly? It's not wind. It's not just string. It takes tension. A string on a kite in the garage does nothing, and wind's not enough. Just let go of the string, and the kite will flutter its way down to the ground. But a kite flies where there's tension, this is why you start running when you have a kite, because you have to fabricate, fabricate the tension that's needed. Why I like the word tension is because too much tension and you'll snap. But just enough tension causes the kite to soar. When there's the right tension, the kite flies, or in other ways to say it, when there's a the right tension in our life between action and contemplation, might hope soar. Might we soar as God's people? Both are needed. But Jesus does say that one thing is more important. Sorry to all the Marthas out there. Mary wins this one. Uh, What is more important is our being with Jesus. Our friend Steve Weens in a podcast, he shared uh, this phrase which I found really helpful uh, to make sure we get it in the right order. This is the phrase. We are called to be in Christ for the world not in the, in the world for Christ. We are called to be in Christ for the world, not in the world for Christ. Our allegiance, our devotion is to Christ, and we will follow him wherever it leads, especially into the world. So uh, just because my guess is most of us in the room might lean more towards a Martha life and not to a Mary life, uh, there's a couple things I want to just pose to you as questions, because each of us need to acknowledge where in my life is there not enough tension. Is am I the type of person who I seek solitary time with Jesus, but I, I'm not into action. I need to be sent more into action, or might I be the other way? Might I be so busy that I need to learn to rest in Christ's love? So some, some questions for reflection: What do I do with margin? Margin is the space between your load and your limit. It's your capacity, uh, uh, it's your capacity to serve beyond your commitments. And we, we need to learn to live with margin in our life. The margin in our schedules, we need to create margin in our schedules to be available for the disruptions in our life, for the Sabbath. What are we doing with margin in our budgets for the unknown, for the ability to be generous, what are we doing with margin in our emotions to extend compassion and sympathy and mercy? Uh, we don't really love the gift of margin. We try to fill it quickly. But what if, to be people who are following Christ, we learn to plan with margin in our life? Second question Am I running on empty? So, right now, how is your tank level? Like, we're, we're, what is your tank level right now? Are you running on empty? we were not created to constantly run on empty. We were created to run hard and then rest well. And if we continue to run on empty, what will happen is we will see distractions, we will be discouraged, and eventually you'll we'll end up being destructive. So if that's you today, I just want, to hear, want you to hear Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The actual Greek in this and this verse says, and I will rest you. Like I will, this is something I'm going to do to you. Come to me if you're weary and if you're burdened, and I'm going to put rest in you. Third question, am I dropping the right balls? Mary chose the right ball to drop that day. And the reality is for us, some things matter more than others. And if we have to choose sometimes, all right, if I'm going to live with margin, what ball am I going to let drop? And so, uh, for me, it's just hard to remember what is more important. Because oftentimes, I will spend most of myself on things that don't really matter. Like a child at uh, Chuck E. Cheese who spent $30 to collect tickets just to buy a couple stupid erasers, you know? Like, oh, that was so, like, not worth the sacrifice. Oftentimes, we give ourselves to the things that don't matter, especially things that don't last. Am I dropping the right balls? Lastly, a question for us as we are living in a Martha world is, do you rest in the gospel? Unlike some people think that the Christian narrative is about doing, about working things out, the heart of the gospel is about rest. Rest. The gospel says this, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were a far way off, the Father was looking for you. While you had nothing to bring to the table, Jesus has welcomed you. That this is the gospel. Though you have very little to bring to Christ, Christ loves and restores you. That rest, stillness, contemplation are some of the great exercises of faith Because it reminds us that we are loved not by our accomplishments, but we are loved by grace. That grace chooses us, and we are playthings of that love. So perhaps, Marthas like me need to remember this simple commandment today. To be still, and to know that I am God. Friends, may you discover the beauty and the tension. And in doing so, may your hopes soar more today.